Well, here we are with another SCI Care What Really Matters podcast. Today, I'm speaking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Kathy Craven in Toronto. I know that with the team and with the help of Jen Cocker, we have some fabulous discussions coming your way. Today's guest is a clinician scientist who is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Toronto and is a really busy lady working in a variety of different areas, leading the Spinal Cord Rehab Program at the Lindhurst Centre in Toronto, which is part of the University Health Network. And Cathy's been providing outpatient services to people living with spinal cord injury in the community for over 19 years and really understands the physical, social and emotional issues to health, the problems that occur after someone has sustained a cord injury. I'm going to leave it to Kathy to talk about some of the other stuff that she does. One of the reasons that we're friends is because we both have a big interest in bone health after spinal cord injury. And so that's where I'm going to start in asking my questions once I've asked Kathy more about how she got to where she is now. So, Kathy, after your training in medicine, what led you to spinal cord injury medicine and to rehabilitation? Ruth, I think I've I've came to medicine and spinal cord injury in a very circuitous way. When I went to medical school, at that time, I was working as a consultant with high-performance athletes, trying to make sure that they peaked at the Olympics, not before, not after. And when I went to medical school, I really didn't intend to practice medicine. I really just wanted to be a more credible consultant. And I thought the letters behind my name would make me a more credible consultant. And when I was a medical student, one of my mentors said, oh, you're a phys ed grad. And I said, yes. She said, we have this wheelchair basketball program. Would you like to referee it in your lunch hours? And I said, yes, not knowing that that would really change the course of my career because I really became interested in the people with spinal cord injury. And uh, that really changed the course of my career, enticed me to learn more about physical medicine and rehab and really changed course of my career. And in my final year of residency, I did a a senior resident clinic in in spinal cord injury with Dr. Joanne Bugaresti. And that really, for me, cemented my interest in people with spinal cord injury and all of their problems and issues. Yes, we all get there by circuitous routes, I think. It was actually the area of rehab that I was least going to go into. But 30-something years on, I'm still doing spinal cord and not planning to leave. Over the years, you've been a regular speaker at ISCOS conferences. I still remember your wonderful presentation at the uh, UK meeting in 2012, which is a long time ago now. And you've spoken at many other spinal cord injury meetings as well. So what are you talking about at this year's meeting? 
At this year's meeting, there are two things. One is a workshop summarizing some of the literature related to the Paralyzed Veterans of America Bone Health and Osteoporosis Management Guideline. In the last 18 months, there's been some really exciting opportunities in the spinal cord world to get to some consensus documents. And there are three that are interrelated to each other. One, which is the International Society of Clinical Densitometry position statement on bone marrow density testing after spinal cord injury. And that's having an international group that is responsible for implementation of bone density testing around the world take up the issue of spinal cord injury and try to direct what happens. In addition, the Orthopedic Trauma Association has produced a series of manuscripts led by Laura Carbone and Bill Obramski looking at fracture management after spinal cord injury and really trying to drive standardization of care and fracture management and really trying to minimize the post-fracture complications. In addition to that, there has been the Paralyzed Veterans of America has formed an international working group to create the first bone health and osteoporosis management guideline from Paralyzed Veterans of America. I know there are other European guidelines that already exist, but a really nice coalescing of some related information that is hopefully going to materially change the field of bone health and really allow patients to understand what is my fracture risk and how can I try to mitigate it. Oh, that's so important because it's an increasing issue as we have people who are aging with spinal cord injuries and the longer they go, the higher the risk. And when they're women, then they've got a double whammy once they hit the five years past the menopause. And uh, so many of them were never, never had anything spoken to them about it. And in Australia, where we have most of a year in sunshine, but more and more people are coming in with very low vitamin Ds. It's an issue that we all get very concerned about. So I'm really looking forward to those workshops and the documents that come out with it. But what else are you going to be doing at the meeting? Just one, I just wanted to comment about the vitamin D and the importance of vitamin D. And I think that has continued to rise over the last year, particularly with the advent of COVID-19. We know that Vitamin D has been associated with neuro recovery, with improved strength and balance, improved bone health, but also because of its immunoprotective properties and its ability to modulate our immune response. It's super important that we make sure, particularly during the COVID pandemic, that everybody has a therapeutic vitamin D response. The other thing that I'm presenting at the meeting, Ruth, is something that I'm really personally very excited about. I started my career doing systematic reviews and meta-analysis and sort of mapping gaps in the spinal cord literature. Then I did a number of longitudinal cohort studies and um, some clinical trials. And now I'm really working in what I would call the field of implementation science, which is trying to implement indicators of quality care with best practices in concert with one another and really trying to bring near-term changes in what we do for patients. So not waiting the 17 years from the time of the completion of a clinical trial to implementation, but really on a day-to-day basis, trying to incrementally move the mile markers around quality care. So in Ontario, we have um, created a consortium called the Spinal Cord Injury Implementation and Evaluation Quality Care Consortium led by myself and uh, Dalton Wolf as uh, co-leaders. And I'm going to present um, some of the work 
that was involved in creating the consortium and the infrastructure for the consortium and some of the recent outputs. And we've really seen some very exciting and measurable changes in care delivery for people with spinal injury. Yeah, that's really exciting. I'm thrilled about that idea. How many groups have you got involved in your consortium? Uh, is it across all the spinal units now in Canada or all the rehab units in uh, Ontario? In the first, um, first funding cycle with just the five spinal cord injury, tertiary spinal cord injury sites in Ontario. So that's in London, Ontario, Hamilton, Toronto, Kingston, and Ottawa. And recently, we just got funding from the Praxis Spinal Cord Institute to expand that nationally. So we've now included partners from the West Coast, from Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver, and from the East Coast, from New Brunswick, Prince PEI, and Halifax. So we're super excited. We've moved from five to 10 sites. We are just in the sort of uh, storming stage of trying to work out how we work together because we're trying to bring together an Ontario network with an Alberta vision and rehab network and with the uh, synapse network that Colleen O'Connell leads in the East Coast. So it, it's a very exciting time for us. And the one thing Canadians are great at is collaborating. And this initiative has really been case in point. And it's amazing to me how clinicians coalesce around advancing care for patients with spinal cord injury and people are super motivated and the most exciting thing about the consortium has been the report from frontline clinicians about how this has really renewed their careers and really reinvested them in in their programs and in moving forward it's been very exciting and that is despite covid and all the chaos going on around us so um an exciting time in, in, in Canada. In our consortium, one of the greatest things of COVID was that it allowed our individuals with lived experience to really be engaged in a very meaningful way because everything was virtual. It was all online. They didn't need to worry about attendant care schedules and travel. They could just join. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's made a huge difference. We have a system in Australia, I mean, various telehealth systems, but one that's been set up federally called Health Direct. And I have a patient who lives a four-hour drive from Adelaide on a property, and he usually comes down to see me, but he's not going to for his 12-month review. We're doing it virtually. He's had the test done. He's done all the things I want him to have done. And he doesn't need to leave the farm. So these sorts of issues have made us learn how to do things differently. And it has allowed patients also to be involved because they have lived experience to be involved in all sorts of research and all sorts of discussions without having to leave home. Yeah, I think it's one of the, the pearls of COVID that I hope we get to maintain. In Toronto, we've really struggled because we think that there are some things that are absolutely appropriate to do um, virtually, but there are still some things that in my heart of hearts believe that you still really require an in-person assessment, for, for instance, for wound care or for hands-on therapy, early post-injury, people really need that. So I've tried to walk the line of, creating opportunities for innovation when there is to do things virtually, but also to really stand tall and say there are some things that cannot be virtual in the spinal cord world. 
you can't just assess somebody's gait um, over the TV if you're concerned about the way they're placing their feet or something like that and you want to get down on the ground and actually hold their leg. And even if you've got a proctor with them at the other end, it is not the same as laying on of hands. And I'm yet to see a general practitioner being able to do an updated standard assessment in their clinic that I would accept and be able to submit to a um, solicitor or to an insurer. Um, you know, we're, we're so trained in doing the Inski Asia assessment and we stand over our trainee staff, your residents, my registrars, to ensure that they're doing it properly. I can't get a proctor to do it like that. I need to be there to assess it. And I think there are so many things like that. And you certainly can't do an initial assessment on a new referral by TV or even worse, by telephone. But COVID has certainly taught us that there are lots of things we can do. And I think that's so, uh, so important. So then, what else? Um, what got you interested in bone health? I mean, you and I have talked about bone health over the years, and, and I think we came at it from different uh, directions. I actually got asked by a registrar, who these days is the Professor of Rehabilitation Medicine at another university, why our patients were losing bone. That's what got me interested. What got you interested? When I was an undergrad in kinesiology, I had the opportunity to sort of volunteer in the lab in the summer. And we did some work looking at muscle, changes in muscle and muscle metabolism, and, um, and also the work with high-performance athletes. And one of those things was looking at calcium flux in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Uh -huh. And in residency, I did an, I looked at a number of other ways in which calcium metabolism influenced patients with spinal cord injury. And in the latter part of my training, I worked with uh, Dr. Rick Adachi, who really is a world-leading expert in uh, steroid-induced osteoporosis. Yep. And we just started talking about the difference between steroid-induced osteoporosis and osteoporosis in patients with spinal cord injury. And that got me hooked. And then here I am. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was just going to say, I started um, looking at it and realizing that the osteoporosis I was seeing in my elderly, predominantly female patients with fragility fractures, particularly hip fractures and wrist fractures, seemed to be quite different to what I was seeing in my spinal cord injury group. And, of course, we know that the um, type of the underlying uh, changes that occur in the bone matrix are different if somebody is an osteoporotic woman or an elderly man with osteoporosis versus the changes that occur in the bone matrix in people with spinal cord injury. And I'm not surprised, therefore, that you came again from a, a different direction because, again, uh, the steroid injuries changes are different again. 
Yeah, Ruth, one of the things that's really sustained my attention over time is I've spent a lot of my time measuring changes in tissue compartments. So looking at muscle atrophy, looking at the accumulation of, in particular, abdominal obesity, the presence of sarcopenic obesity, looking at changes in bone, reductions in bone mass and changes in bone structure. And what's struck me is how all of the tissue changes can happen, but it's the tissue changes in the presence of inflammation that lead to all the bad outcomes. So to fracture, to early diabetes, to fatty liver disease, and what David Gator calls neurogenic obesity, to early onset heart disease. And I become increasingly more interested in how those tissues interact with one another and how they communicate with one another. You know, it's only recently we've learned that there's a nervous system inside bone and that communicates and that there likely is a mechanical and biochemical communication between muscle and bone that we didn't understand before. And spinal cord injury, the thing that I love is its complexity. It's not simple for the people living with it, but it's really calls on all of our skills to try to understand what's going on and try to intervene and change the outcomes for people. So that's the part that I think is super interesting. And, and I've spent a bit of time working in implementation as we discussed, but also trying to look for some new candidate biomarkers that help us understand how muscle, bone, and fat interact. You know, we're starting to see now with the QCT imaging, you know, the deposition of fat inside muscle that we didn't really understand in the past. Yeah, and you will recall my uh, colleague, Gillian Clark, and her PhD research, which looked at the early changes in the pathways. And what we found that we could see changes in bone turnover at six weeks post-acute injury that you didn't actually see in bone density scanning until at least 12 months and often not till 24 months after injury. And we coined the term of the unhappy osteocyte. Yeah, because it's such the bone metabolism is not a static thing. It is the turnover is a very tightly structured system and it just needs one thing to get out of whack which happens to be the spinal cord and the whole system is interfered with fat deposition in the wrong places fat in the bone marrow the differences that you can see and the differences between people who motor complete and motor incomplete in terms of their bone density. But the more severe the um, motor completeness and the younger a person is when they're injured, um, the worse the risk. But we also don't understand, and maybe you can tell me why, some people have a bone density that you look at and you go, why hasn't this person fractured? I know they've fallen out of their wheelchair. They've got a Z score of minus four. 
Why haven't they fractured? And then you have somebody who has a Z score of minus 1.5 and they've fallen out of their wheelchair and they're fractured. And I don't understand why that happens because it doesn't make clinical sense to my clinical brain. And I agree with you that the complexity is what keeps us going and interested in the medical side of spinal cord injury as opposed to the surgical side, for example. It's medically so interesting and why a lot of us don't retire until we're (laughs) the climate age. Um, Can you explain that, though? I think what we have learned is there's no magic VMD value that predicts fracture risk. And that when you're looking at a patient's fracture risk, you have to look at them globally and a number of risk factors. And I think one of the things that's come out that I think is very important and something for the field to really think about is the association of opioids and fracture risk. And, uh, you know, we give out opioids very early post-injury, which, um, you know, to try to manage the patient's perioperative pain, which is substantial but we don't get rid of them as fast as we should. And we don't work to say, can we avoid giving opioids at all? Because there are many, many patients on long-term opioids that don't really seem to be managing their pain and are having adverse consequences for their bone. So I think there's a real opportunity in the field to really look at our peri and post-operative pain management, looking at our strategies for managing neuropathic pain, because that's, that's something that is modifiable. Um, We can't necessarily modify at this point the degree, the neurologic impairment or the degree to which there are changes in the volume and number of trabeculae or the degree of cortical thinning, but maybe we will get risk factors that predict the risk for fracture that we need to go really go after those modifiable risk factors. I think you've got a good point there. And I know that the pain people really moving away as much as possible from the use of opioids and are trying to get patients off them much earlier. And given that in the acute sector, they're often the ones who put people on um, opiate analgesia, I think we have to work really closely with them as well. One of the other modifiable things, of course, is smoking, cigarettes and alcohol. And, of course, a lot of our patients even if they didn't drink a lot of alcohol before they were injured, may take up drinking alcohol because of mood disturbance or continue to smoke and smoke heavily or maybe even increase how much they're smoking. And these are also well-known factors associated with osteoporosis in the general community. So it's the sort of thing that the lifestyle issues that affect so many people in the general community are made all the worse and all the more harmful when you couple them with spinal cord injury. Is that your feeling too? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I really changed about how I ask about alcohol history over the years, Ruth. There are people who have modest amounts of alcohol every day and there are people who are the, the weekend bingers who have massive quantities of alcohol on the weekends. I think when we're taking our histories, we really have to help distinguish. 
I've been really surprised to learn that there are a number of um, young men and middle-aged men with spinal cord injury who do some weekend binge drinking, but there are a number of women with spinal cord injury who are quite uh, significant, have significant alcohol intake and really meet the diagnostic criteria for alcoholism. And they're often the ones that do not have social support and appear to be coping. But when you actually get into asking them what's going on, you learn quite a bit. So alcohol to me is a whole separate ball of wax, but certainly more than five servings of alcohol per day puts people at a significant risk for fracture. And that's been shown in smoking, we know is bad for many tissues, including increased cancer risk and respiratory impairment. But we actually don't have great data showing smoking and fracture risk in spinal cord injury, although we see smoking and the risk of osteoporosis in the general population. But we've never had a study really that has shown that causal link, maybe associations, but with fracture. So I think that's something that hopefully the field will take on and try to describe a bit better as we move forward. There's lots for us to do. I don't think we're going to lose our interest in bone health or tissue health in my lifetime as a physician. It's, there's just too much to keep us interested. Now, apart from that, Kathy, have you got any other research interests? I think you're one of the, you're just so busy all the time. And I am, you're also a clinician. But I know that apart from your consortium and all the other things you're doing, are you doing any other research, clinical research or basic research? I try to um, <clears throat> intentionally have made my research program that half of the focus is on um, health services and health systems and services. And some understanding some of those issues can sometimes be done quickly in a year or two. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a, a sort of consistent focus on those. And then I also try to look at mechanistically some of the things that are going on. So we've also spent quite a bit of time understanding what I would call endocrine metabolic disease of how, yes. um, you know, bone, muscle, fat, and heart disease are interrelated. And we certainly see the people who have the greatest risk of fracture, also the people who have uh, cardiometabolic disease risk and often early elevations in arterial stiffness and the presence of heart disease. And it's really tragic that many patients with spinal cord injury aren't being identified as having heart disease and their initial presentation is an MI or a stroke. And we have ongoing issues with getting good access to primary care for patients with spinal cord injury, which I'm sure you are familiar with and many organizations, including ISCOS has, you know, working groups trying to address this, but the crossover between what is, you know, good general care for family doctors engaged in primary and secondary prevention and understanding the nuances for spinal cord injury, treating that early changes in total cholesterol to HDL ratio, not waiting till a patient meets a metabolic syndrome definition for needing a statin. And some of those kinds of things are really an interesting walk between health services and, and new physiology. So I have continued to work in, in um, endocrine metabolic disease and really started now starting to collaborate with colleagues 
who are animal researchers and trying to be able to have a dialogue for both our learners and for faculty across the continuum. We continue to have this very significant conundrum that most of our animal research is done in female rats and most of our people that we treat are men. And yes. I think this is a major failing in, in what we do. And there's been this big impetus in science to continue to explore the role of sex. And I think it's likely more substantial than the spinal cord injury community has really considered up until now. And you can really see that in when you look at long-term complications and differential rates of specific complications in men versus women. And I don't think we've paid enough attention to that as a field. And we really haven't delved into gender expression and how it influences the care that we give. That's somewhere that we probably need to go as a, a community and also addressing the needs of the different Indigenous groups that are present in every country. I think the other side of that also is that when we look at the non-traumatic group, the gender differential is much closer to 50-50. But, and like the men now, there's a real bimodal picture in terms of age. So you have younger women who have occasionally have traumatic injuries but often have other uh, neurological events, transverse myelitis or infection. And then you have the much older women who already come with lots of comorbidities often. And so they're a different group again the to the older men who are falling off ladders or out of trees. And, and so we've got more than... We've got more than one group, even in what we think is fairly standardised group. Spinal cord injury is different in every person who presents with it, which is one of the reasons why research is so hard and (laughs) one of the reasons why we have, well, so little data on the Indigenous populations in each continent. Um, the, The literature is mainly New Zealand, Canada, and the little bit written about the Australian Aborigines. There is not a lot out there, but they have different bone structure again, different body shapes. In my country, they have a high risk of dyslipidemia, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and renal disease. And then they get a spinal cord injury and all hell breaks loose because (laughs) they become, they can't go back to their communities. It took me, it it takes sometimes three or four years to be able to get somebody back to their communities. I don't know what it's like in Canada for people who live outside the big metropolitan areas, but it is very hard in Australia. So we have lots of work to do and lots of different groups to look at. So having said all that and taken your time away, I think, from your very busy day, I wonder what else there is for us to talk about. There is one thing, but we've touched on it already, and that is how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the way you work 
and how it has affected your patients and how many of your patients have actually developed, been infected with COVID and whether there is a problem in Canada like there is here with people not wanting to get vaccinated? Okay, loaded question. So Ruth, I want to tell you, during uh, COVID, we did have an outbreak on our inpatient unit at Lindhurst. And we learned a lot about what we do in rehab that can contribute to the threat of COVID. And one of the big things that came up for us was the number of things, pieces of equipment, staff we share across units. So at Lindhurst, we have 60 inpatient beds, three 20-bed units, Mm -hmm. all encased in a freestanding building. And we share equipment, gym space, staff, some staff work on two units. So during COVID, it really highlighted the need to be able to create self-functioning units so that we could isolate one unit from the other. COVID has created uh, in Ontario sort of a command and response to free up our acute care and ICU resources and to move people to rehab and from rehab to community as quickly as feasible. And it's really shown the importance of rehabilitation, particularly spinal cord injury rehabilitation in the field in helping the hospital manage some of their acute care uh, resources. And we've also had through trying to work through COVID and COVID related responses, some really great opportunities to connect with our colleagues in acute care and to arrange for our spinal cord patients to be transferred back to acute care when they were ill. And what has been very fascinating is actually the appreciation of other people in the health system, how much work that is when patients are early post-injury and require a lot of care and assistance with, you know, self-care, turning, bowel, bladder, skin. Um, So For us, I think it's one brought a little more profile to rehab. We have been at or above census from the beginning of COVID all the way through. We did see a shift in our demographic of spinal cord injury, but we never saw a reduction in the number of people with spinal cord injury. And we now have this growing backlog of people with uh, needing urgent uh, surgery that will also be driving further need for spinal cord injury services, as well as the silver tsunami coming at us of people aging with myelopathy that will also need spinal cord services. We have, in rehab, we have redeployed our staff to help acute care. We have redistributed tasks within our team to handle the increased workload. So instead of going into profession-specific models of care delivery, looking at who can provide this type of care in in COVID-related scenarios. So where we have OTs, physicians, nurses helping with morning routines at, you know, the peak of COVID that, um, you know, would not be our normal practice. So it in some ways blurred some of the lines within the team about who does what task and how things are done. And it did create some opportunities for operational efficiency. We have had a number of patients with COVID that have survived. And so I really try to talk to my patients now, but if you are sick, you need to be in the ER. We actually can help you. I know in the early stages of COVID, there was a lot of fear for people with disability that if if there was a shortage of resources that they would be turned away and not be served. 
And through some very strong advocacy, that issue has really been taken off the table. And so I think it really is appropriate for those people who are ill or think they may have COVID to get early intervention. And in the outpatient cases that I've managed, what has struck me is the number of people who presented with COVID with bladder and GI symptoms that were later proved to be um, COVID positive. And so just further reinforcing how COVID is the great masquerader in the spinal cord injury community, we'd see patients who present with diarrhea and then drop their oxygen saturations. And then we knew they had COVID. So, um, you know, it, it really behooves us to be very careful in examining people and in identifying those who are at risk. And we've dealt with all sorts of dramas. Everyone has worldwide with attendance not showing up. Um, you know, these poor people being at home, you know, vulnerable and wondering every day, is someone going to come? And if they come, are they going to provide the care that I need or give me COVID or a variant of COVID? And we cannot underestimate the stress that that causes people. And I've really been floored by the ability of some people's families and extended social networks to rise to the occasion and really help people. And there's been a lot of services in Canada and I assume around the world that have, you know, we now get everything delivered to our door. You can order your groceries ahead of time, drive up and they'll put them in your trunk. You can pick up food. Drugs are delivered to your home. I hope these things stay because for people with disability, it just makes life easier. Oh, it does. I've always said when they make footpaths wheelchair accessible and transport wheelchair accessible, it actually means that mums with pushers can also get in. We take it for granted that the changes that happen in the environment there for everybody, but people don't think about how they got there in the first place. And a lot of those changes in the environment came from people who were using wheelchairs or using walking aids, gate aids, that couldn't manage the external environment as easily. Um, And I'm pleased to hear that you have been able to get your patients into hospital my acute hospital was the designated COVID hospital for South Australia. We have had very little COVID in South Australia and the Northern Territory with only occasional lockdowns, but the Eastern states have had significant problems and New South Wales has a Delta problem that they have managed to spread throughout the country by not dealing with it early enough. And so having felt that we were very safe and the patients were safe, we're now starting to feel very uncomfortable again. And and I get very worried when I have patients who say, oh, no, I won't be vaccinated because I prefer everybody else to be vaccinated first to make sure it's all right. We've crossed the threshold with the millions of people who have been vaccinated worldwide. And we have data that shows being vaccinated doesn't reduce your risk of getting COVID, it reduces your risk of dying. And, um, you know, there's no reason why spinal cord injury patients wouldn't benefit from vaccine. And there are a few patients who've had transverse myelitis, the, the etiology of their cord injury, that need to have individualized discussions with their care providers about vaccine and the risk of vaccine. 
And there are a few people who had their cord injury associated with the vaccine initially that do need to have a more lengthy discussion and it is more complex. But for the large majority, the waiting time is over. The time is now. Yes. And that's what we're telling people. But I think COVID has taught us a lot as well as we talked about that's taught us to utilise the technology. Ten years ago, we would not have been able to do the things we've done. And when you think about the Spanish flu of 1919 and people would get a letter six or eight weeks after someone had died to tell them that someone had died and everything is now available immediately and you can actually look up the data on a daily basis around the world of how many people are vaccinated, how many people have got over COVID, how many people have died. And it's a daily update that we can all access. One of the exciting things has been the discussion daily about research. People understand what clinical trials are, a phase one, a phase two, a phase three. This is over people's dinner tables, the value of data and how data can influence decision-making. So those, I think, are wins for the global field and, and helping people understand the role and importance of research in changing what happens to people. I hope that ISCOS and other organizations will encourage all regulated healthcare professionals to be vaccinated and to try to protect our patients. Kathy, I think we should close it there. I'm so grateful that you have been able to give us so much of your time today for sharing your knowledge and giving us the most wonderful insights, not only about your research, but your ongoing interests. Thank you also for all the time and effort you have given to the ISCOS 2021 Local Organising Committee. You've been a very active part of that committee. I know we did look at coming to Toronto or nearby, but in the end, Vancouver won out. And then in the end, it all went virtual anyway. So we're none of us getting to Canada which I'm very upset about because I had my Canadian trip totally sorted. And now I have to put it off for another year, but that's fine. I know that we will eventually be able to travel again and sit at tables together rather than sit in our offices or our studies from the other side of the world. I hope You, our audience, have enjoyed listening to SCI Care, What Really Matters. As always, we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email them to our head office at admin at iscos.org.uk. And I do hope that Kathy and I are both able to see you at our 60th anniversary scientific annual meeting at the end of September and the beginning of October. All details are in our show notes and you will also find us on social media. So do follow us and join in the conversation. Until next time, please stay healthy, stay safe, look after yourselves 
and looked after all our wonderful patients that we serve. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you, Ruth. Look forward to seeing everyone at ISCOS.